This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. What would it feel like to know you're on top of one of the world's ancient lost cities, now found but invisible against the backdrop of the densest rainforest on earth, completely absorbed, swallowed up in a belly of lush vegetation, deadly animals, and even more dangerous humans. This is where a group of researchers found themselves just a few years ago. Cloaked in determination, Steve Elkins and his team descended into the remote mysteries of the Mesquita Rainforest in February of 2015. The results of their time in the wilderness bringing discoveries to light no one could predict. And the effort continues. Join us on Into the Portal for a special look into the ongoing efforts to recover the history of these long-forgotten peoples of the lost city of the Monkey God. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. We're back with part two of our Monkey God series. That's right. <laughs> the search for the legendary lost city of the Monkey yeah. God. Thank you for joining us. Um, right off the bat, before we get into things, I got a little bit of housekeeping. We as do usual. indeed. Yes, we do. So for starters, we have question number four of our Coffee Gator contest that's going to be coming up after our promo break about halfway through the show today. So stay tuned for that. And of course, like you guys can go back and listen to the last few episodes and get those answers in from those first few Coffee Gator contest questions, you'll get multiple multiple entries. So exactly. yeah, we've got this awesome stainless steel French press. And of course, uh, you guys can always get your 15% off at Coffee Gator when you use our promo code QUARK, Q-U-A-R-K. Mm-hmm. So. Use that at checkout. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, CoffeeGator.com, I believe. That's right. Yeah. And then we also have uh, sort of a new, new old, new-ish patron Yay! on our Patreon. So um, shout out to uh, Matthew C. for upgrading uh, to... Uh, we lost you for a bit and we got you back. It's awesome to have <laughs> you back, man. And uh, upgrading to the Paranormal Scholar level. So he's getting the our bonus mini-sodes, which is awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh, and just FYI for all of you listening... Uh, this will be our second to last question for this Coffee Gator contest. That's so right. after the end of week five, then contest is closed. So if anyone's just been dilly-dallying and uh, <laughs> delaying their entries, get them in. Yeah, hop on. It's just the first tab on our website, Coffee Gator Contest. Super easy. And mm-hmm. uh, we'll, yeah, we'll shoot you a message if you win. And then we also have a review before we get into it. We got a little bit more housekeeping. <laughs> and yeah, I was stoked on this. Five-star review from Christy from uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. And she says, um, intriguing content and genuine delivery. And she mentioned that she really loved the Monkey God episode uh, part one. So, yeah, that's awesome. That was really cool. Yeah, Thanks, so thank Christy. you so much, Christy. And keep those reviews coming. Do us a solid. If you haven't had a chance yet, uh, leave us a review. And also tell a friend about the show. That's like the best way to spread the show is to just tell a friend. It really is. So we'd really appreciate it. And you guys have been amazing already. So thank you so much for all that you've done. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, 
that's it for housekeeping. I'm ready to jump into this. Definitely. Let's get into it. Before we move into our main colors for today, mm -hmm. uh, I guess we could just do a little bit of review. There's a few things that I wanted that we teased about more day at the end of the last episode that yes. we need to get into. Yes. But we're not going to get too bogged down in an actual review of that whole part one. If you guys haven't listened to it already, I would highly recommend going and checking that out before you get into this part. Definitely. Yeah. Just for all the history, the backstory, all the legends. The buildup, man. Exactly. You know, the juice build up <laughs> totally so yeah just go back and listen but yeah before we get into things i wanted to mention a few things about our friend morde that should be recognized and right. his contributions or uh i guess you could say questionable contributions can you do a quick recap of just who this guy was so morde he came along in the 1930s he had an expedition in 1939 and right. he had an assistant i can't remember the name but it was the two of them essentially they went up well they said they were going to go up the river patuka i don't think they even ended up going there um what happened was they were they were hired essentially by a guy named um george gustav hay who was mm -hmm. obsessed with finding uh, mesoamerican artifacts and just north american um indigenous artifacts yeah. in general so he wasn't quote, well he didn't want to go down himself so of course <laughs> he just he just um paid for morday to go down and mord was the one who came back with extraordinary claims he had a 1940 interview with cbs that just was incredible to say the least yeah. and so he <sighs> claimed to have found the ruins of an ancient city filled <laughs> with size. monkey statues and that he also found like death masks he found a variety of artifacts some of which he brought back with him mm -hmm. yes big sigh because these were just it was all ruse essentially right. so mord never discovered the ruins of an ancient city um nor did he even look for it he was he too busy. He didn't even try. Exactly. He was too busy looking for gold. So, right. yeah. He in, okay, so this is the most effed up part about this whole story to me, is the fact that he actually wrote extensively about his his search for gold. That's all he documented in three journals. Two were actually marked the third Honduran expedition, and the other one was marked field notes. Now, the most absurd part about this to me is the fact that these journals were never surrendered to his patrons. Yeah. He kept them in Super his possession, weird. and then after he died in 1950, they were kept in possession of his family for decades and decades and decades until one of his relatives, a nephew that was holding them hostage or whatever, however you want to spin that, okay. that essentially what happened was he went to jail for a serious crime. And his right. wife unwittingly um, loaned all of these journals, all these documents to the National Geographic Society, I believe, either that or Smithsonian. And then it was revealed the extent to which he was such a fraud. Right. And so this is just a really sad story. So essentially, as ascertained by Douglas Preston, he starts off, there's like a whole chapter in his book about this. He actually studied, he got um, a hold of these journals, complete copies. They were all scanned and everything. So full copies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> read of thread them through there was absolutely no mention of the white city or the search for any such city aside from one random note that was written on the back of a page that just reads like a random appendix entry so it's just like this like white city ciudad blanca like a boot and that was it there's like right. not even like, like oh no we're connection. going to search for oh we found this about it or a native told us a story about right. this none of that that's weird none of it I know. And so the journals actually thoroughly document their efforts at panning this old gold setup that was um, established in 1907 by this other guy. This uh, He was kind of a joke, too. But anyways, okay. <laughs> that was a whole other story. Yeah. But essentially, 
they were panning for gold for several weeks until they got washed out and all their equipment got washed away in the high season. It was like the rainy season. Okay. And so they never, they never even were successful in that. So it's all just a big waste. So he almost like, I wonder if that was almost why he went about his lies. Because it was all just a... Because why he ended up killing himself in 1950? Well, yeah. You never know. Got a lot of secrets, a lot of lies. Indeed. You gotta wonder. Um, yeah. But they never even went up the Platano or the Pollyanna rivers where this white city was reported to be. And this is the most, this makes me sick. Okay, so there's this guy named Derek Parent. And he was a researcher who spent decades following Mord's trail. And he was obsessed with this walking stick that had these mysterious sort of coordinates on it. And it was Mord's walking stick. Mm -hmm. And he thought that this must hold the secret location of this mythical white city that Mord raved about (laughs) until he died. And so he followed him for, yeah, exactly that, like multiple decades, went and did extensive trips down in Mosquita and... All the time was in a so like in conversations with and correspondence with the nephew, Mord's nephew, mm-hmm. the one that ended up going to jail. And Mord's nephew actually told this guy, Derek Parent, that the entire contents of Journal 2, aside from the first page, was destroyed, and that it was in those pages that the lost city had been found and documented by Mord. Mord A, whatever. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So could you imagine when Preston, he had this full copy in front of him and he starts communicating with Derek Parent because mm-hmm. obviously he's an authority in the field. Right. And then it becomes apparent to parent, <laughs> apparent to parent, <laughs> um, that this law, journal too was never actually lost. And so I could just imagine the sinking feeling you would get. Like you've spent literally probably half of your academic career on this, if not yeah. even his full academic career. I'm not sure how extensive it was. Yeah, that's a rough blow for sure. Isn't that just just makes you sick. You know, I'm trying to rack my brain to think of other examples when stuff like that has happened. Like, I feel like we've come across that a few different, in a few different cases that, that we've looked at. Where it's the just episodes. like complete frauds and Yeah, where and... you spend a long time looking for something, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even, I don't even know, I'm, I'm remembering back to even episode one, something to do with, uh, even with the, the, the Castiglione brothers yeah. and looking for the, the, uh, the Lost Star. How they were like half like a, a shock film, like, yeah. you know, like whatever. Very yeah. misleading stuff, but people are often pushed and pulled in different ways, but this one's rough because that's a long time. This to me speaks to even something deeper. It's like, it's a level of psychosis that is so beyond, right? Because it's not even just Mord lying, it's, it's his descendants. And then on top of it, they're actually... Like, it's not just as if they're just doing it to, well, they are doing it to keep the family prestige, but it's more than that, right? Because they're destroying the careers of other people. Like, could you imagine being in communications with this guy, knowing full well that your uncle never discovered anything to do with the white Yeah, city? like, if you wanted to preserve the family name, like, I would just ditch them, right? Or just destroy them and I'm just say them. it was like, oh, they were lost in a fire or whatever. Exactly. Because then you're not, at least you're not, Yeah. So that was really, that was a really huge, like, moment in the book when I was reading it. I was like, whoa, like, this is crazy because the decades that followed, right? So, like, Mord happened in 1939. So there's about five decades up until the 90s where he was highly influential in this field of Mm -hmm. looking for this mythical white city and just how misleading that was. Like, everyone was looking in the wrong place because they were just following his coordinates. Like, he had, like, these GPS coordinates. Yeah. Oh, it just makes me feel sick. But But luckily... 
we have uh, definitely made progress since then, obviously, though. Exactly. And, uh, we're kind of moving into that. And that's that was obviously, yeah, that's the focus on Morde uh, from from last episode. But essentially, if you guys go back and listen to the part one, if you haven't had a chance yet, it's it's Morde and then the expeditions that lead up into this craziness that was, you know, people were following all the way through into the 90s, basically, until we get this kind of new crew. Yeah, with Steve Elkins and his crew. And important to mention, too, is, like, even despite the fact that Mord never really discovered anything, um, if it wasn't for him, he wouldn't have kept the story alive. So people like Steve Elkins quite possibly could never have come across it, potentially. You never know. But Everything happens for a reason in a weird way when it comes to stuff like this, right? Exactly. Um, there's a puzzle piece left. No matter who's lying or making stuff up, there's always going to be something to... Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I, yeah, yeah it, it's it's good in a way, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. That's the ambiguity, but again, yeah, yeah, that's what you always get with legend making. <laughs> so, but we're moving into, we're jumping up a little bit here, into, you know, 2015, with Steve Elkins, Bill Benison, and their expedition into these super, super tense jungles of the Mosquito Range, mm-hmm. and where they've actually found La Ciudad Blanca. Wow. Or it's something that could so, be interpreted as that, exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it just depends who you talk to. And I, I'm... Exactly. I'm leaning one way. It's funny, though. Even before 2015, Steve Elkins started his journey into this expedition in the 90s. Right. And he was combing through all this pre-existing research into this region and through that, he became quite hopeful. He had this, you know, it's the classic sort of narrative where it's like the guy gets the idea in his head and he needs to go and find it. <laughs> so, yeah. so he began just by doing yeah, exactly armchair, armchair journalism. And then he contacted this guy named Ron Blom. And he was actually a NASA researcher. And he was in one department where they were basically doing satellite scans of... Um, of the ground, of the earth, and they're mapping the earth and yeah. discovering things that weren't normally seen. Right. So he had actually already discovered Blom, this Ron Blom guy had discovered <laughs> Ron, Ron Blom. Ron Blom. <laughs> what a name. That's great. Yeah, him and his team, they discovered Ubar. Right. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ubar. I wasn't that familiar, but it's a lost Arabian city. It, it's, uh, that definitely popped up in our research looking at Zerzura. Exactly. For yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. I totally yeah. forgot about that. Mm-hmm. So the way that they went about this, like, they were actually able to penetrate the sand. And I believe it was up to 15 feet or 18 feet, something like that. Um, Which doesn't sound outright like a lot, but that's quite deep. It is. It's literally penetrating. Like, think about all the microscopic granules of sand, and you're going through all of those. Right. And mapping out a terrain underneath it. Pretty cool. Yeah. So he had um, found Ubar. He was actually working on other projects, including mapping the Silk Road, um, mapping Civil War sites in Virginia. Wow, that's pretty And then also the Frankincense Trail in the Arabian Desert. Crazy. So it's kind of cool. Like, um, Preston, he introduces Blom in his book, and he kind of says here, this is a quote, Blom explained that by combining digitalized images in different wavelengths of infrared light and radar, and then, quote, beating up on the data, end quote, with computers, they were now able to see 15 feet under the sands, peer through jungle canopies, and even cancel out modern tracks and roads revealing ancient trails crazy right that's insane hey and that's that that's an important part because it's like you don't actually have to get like when people are probably picturing this in their heads like you don't need like the full 3d rendering of like a city beneath the sand or beneath the jungle canopy or whatever you literally just need the top 
Like mm-hmm. you need you need the inclination that there's something there, and mm-hmm. you can tell then what's beneath that, even exactly. if even if the lidar itself is not getting totally that deep. And just another note on that is like this was happening in the '90s, so they were using satellites from space, right? And the um like the detail they were able to see was not even nearly as detailed as they'll get in 2012 when they actually start to map LIDAR zones in the Mosquito area. Exactly. Yeah. So are we getting into that right now? Let's do it. Okay. (laughs) Because that's obviously just a game changer, right? So moving into these new methods and LIDAR, so that using this, this laser technology, and we referenced it in part one, but... I pulled this just from just from a blog online, but there's we've we've referenced this as well though. But there's like not that many arch, archaeological oh my god <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> archaeological sites that have actually been discovered and documented in the Mosquito. Like comparatively, when you're looking at Maya ruins mm-hmm. and you're looking at Aztec ruins and different things like that, definitely less known. It's, it's kind of crazy, right? Um, so a mere you know in and around 200 during the 20th century, and it's only been recently with this development of lidar that have now been systematically mapped that we've actually been able to like make these advances and find these new or it's even like yeah there'll be like an archaeological site and they'll think they've discovered it but then when you go and map it with lidar you discover it's way more extensive than previously imagined just by what they've been able to do with ground truthing what they call like you know like when you're on the ground excavating right yeah crazy right yeah so, yeah, I mean, this has changed since this 2015 expedition. So they've uncovered, you know, a hugely significant array of, like, plants and animal life that, you know, are now protected by the hunter and military and ecological protection agencies and stuff like that. So it has a larger impact beyond just finding um, ruins and things like that, Exactly, right? yeah. So, we, yeah, we wanted to reference the caracol finds in Belize because this is obviously one of the more significant ones that is in the region, right? Mm-hmm. It was discovered in 2009, and this was a watershed moment for this LIDAR technology because the excavation had been taking place for decades, and it was headed up by this husband and wife team, uh, the Chases. I don't actually know what their mm-hmm. first names were. Oh, I can't remember now off the top of my head. That last name is so familiar, though. I feel like we've seen them before. <laughs> but anyway, they, they both felt that a great deal was missed, you know, just under the surface of this thick canopy, which is pretty obvious in a way like clearly things need, are gonna like, get missed i know right you need like such a big team to actually properly excavate like it's hard to get the funding and then to have the time and then on top of that you need to do it in the dry season right so so income you make LIDAR. headway exactly so you okay so for example how frustrating it would be you would make headway in the dry season you'd be there for several months you would have to leave eventually because of the rains and because of whatever else. You'd come back the next year only to find everything overgrown again. So you have to spend like half the amount of time that you would use to actually start excavating more. Yeah, because it all just, just grows to in. recover. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. Basically, the estimate on this one was that the LIDAR technology allowed them to uncover what they would have taken them 25 years manually. And that's probably a fairly conservative estimate. It is estimate. a conservative estimate. Yeah, totally. Right. So the Chase team, though, this husband and wife team and their crew, they actually ended up partnering with NASA and um, NCALM, the National Center for Airborne Nicole. Laser Mapping. So, yeah. So they teamed up with these two groups in order to actually map this area. So, and they were using this was sort of one of the first instances of the airborne LIDAR technology. So actually strapping these crazy devices that were military grade to Cessna planes that mm. are accessible in Honduras and these Central American countries. Not all of them are 
super duper well kept, <laughs> like we've uh, seen in Preston's book and stuff like that. It's almost like kind I feel like it's kind of a disguise, right? Because it's like if you got this like super modern looking, like high end, like multi million dollar looking vessel, it would attract so much attention That's in a place like Honduras. Very true. Obviously. It actually makes a lot more sense to kind of even if you are going out in super remote places, like still you have to take off even from that, somewhere. And the fact that it is so remote means that it has a high presence of uh, narco traffickers, so you could right. easily get shot down. Yeah, thing. these guys got RPGs and stuff, I'm sure. <laughs> yep, anyway, um, <laughs> so, but of course, this obviously made a big, there's a big shift because this is, goes from satellite imaging to obviously you're very, very close to what you're actually looking for. You're just, mm-hmm. just off the, the jungle canopy. So yeah, um, this was a quote from Preston's book. The best ground resolution Blom could obtain in the mid 1990s was about 90 feet so LIDAR promised a resolution of better than three feet, even under the forest canopy. So mm-hmm. it was getting through all those tiny little cracks and crevices. So I guess what they weren't even calling it LIDAR technology in the 90s. It no. was just satellite imaging technology that they were using. And right. so this, yeah, the newest advent was LIDAR and it came around in the 2000s. Right. Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said before, like, yeah, they're using a Cessna Skymaster. It's a teeny, teeny, teeny little thing. And it was retrofitted to house this, uh, like, you know, a million dollars worth of equipment, U.S. dollars, to completely scan everything from the sky. So you have (laughs) the plane itself is probably only worth like 10 or 15 grand or something, (laughs) which is kind of funny. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what they ended up revealing was an incredible view of essentially roughly 80 square miles of terrain that Mm -hmm. they were able to map. Of actual, actually, you know what they did? They had um, like a target zone of about 200 square kilometers. And then within the 200 square kilometers, they found 80 approximate square miles of um, like human intervened um, uh, ground. Yeah, exactly. And this effort took a week. And this would have traditionally (laughs) taken 25 years. Human intervened. (laughs) Just like human influenced. um, Oh my God! What am I trying to say? I don't like even landscape, know what you're trying to say. <laughs> human intervention, like human-imposed landscapes, right, 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 not naturally formed. Yes. Wow, that was that bad. took a second to get out there. <laughs> That's all good. So by that we mean like obviously like structures, causeways, right. terraces, buildings, like the or the foundations of such tombs and 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 yeah, religious altars in, and all in kinds of stuff. the thousands so right. it's not even just like oh here's one there there's one there it's yeah. like this is insane <laughs> so this was a quote from preston right five days lighter had accomplished seven times more than the chases had achieved in 25 years of work five days incredible and then could we'll, you imagine that like we'll reference this a little later too but like there was there were people in the academic community that had the audacity to criticize the use of this technology. Oh, let's get into it Even right though now. you can... Are we, we going to get into that right now? Sure, why not? Might as well. It's okay. not in the notes anywhere, but yeah. Okay. Uh, what was the name of the one... Oh, well, there was this woman named Dr. Joyce. Right. And she comes up in Preston's book quite a bit too because she was very highly critical of the efforts in Mosquita by Steve Elkins and his crew and just in general of LiDAR technology. Yeah. She's like super old school and I think... She just got a bee in her bonnet. She was jealous. Because, yeah, she was jealous. And she she was just, like, being stubborn, I think, because she's like, you need to be on the ground. Is this whole, like, focus on ground truth thing. It's like, okay, but wait a second, lady. Yeah. This is extremely hostile and just challenging terrain in general. So why wouldn't you help yourself out by doing a scan from above 
identifying so, these zones yes. and then going in and ground truthing, which is exactly what they did. Exactly. She was absurd. She really frustrated me. You know what me. this, uh, the closest reference in my life, I feel like, is to this late lady's critique of this, <laughs> is when you go into a really huge parking lot, you're in the store for a while, you come out, you have no idea where your car is. <laughs> you know you can press the beep or the lock thing to get it to beep and find your car. Why wouldn't you use that? You got the technology. No, I'm going to go the old school way. I'm just going to walk row by row and waste an hour trying to find it where my car is. That's what she would do. Dr. Joyce Absurd. in a nutshell. Absurd. Anyway. So yeah, they were highly criticized by some people, but then on the flip side, their findings were obviously publicized made headlines all over the place. Yes. And that's where Steve kind of comes in because... He had been in contact with Ron Blom. They had had these initial sort of scans done or wanted to do them. He was in communications and had a contract going. But when LIDAR becomes a new thing in the late nine or late 2000s, that's when Steve's like, we need to get back on this. Yeah. Because he had actually tried to go in and do an expedition in, I believe it was the late 1990s, and it actually just fell apart on him. Yeah, okay. And he even, it's so funny, in the book, he makes a comment to Douglas Preston, the author, and just says like, okay, so when we had these images in our hands and we realized what we were sitting on, I had to really dig deep and ask myself, do I want to go through all that bullshit again right. to get the necessary permits from the Honduran government to get their cooperation, participation, all this kind of stuff. And yeah. so it's it becomes a lot more political at this point. It's not just scientific and it's not just about gaining funds. It's about gaining access. So he, yeah, he, he, he had to really... <laughs> ask himself that question but then in yeah. the end came up yes we need he to do thought this Thought it was worth it i mean this was a and you got to admire that yeah i definitely do yeah so it was about 2011 when they uh, first started um mapping these zones out and they had about four different target zones they called them t1 t2 t3 and t4 easier so, to remember exactly and another reason that steve was actually critiqued too is because he is a filmographer i don't know if he actually has any um academic background in archaeology but he has an obvious fascination with this stuff so people use that to kind of beat down the legitimacy of his expedition too yeah but that's yeah but which is absurd too because he was obviously a journalist and knew what i mean knew how to do proper research and stuff and he networked with the people who had the credentials exactly like he invited archaeologists he invited anthropologists he invited everyone that right anyways i won't get too much into that but <laughs> <laughs> so essentially at first he wanted to map out all of mosquito yes Way too expensive. That's that's an that's an endeavor. <laughs> so he ended up going with about fifty square miles total, mm -hmm. and these were sort of targeted out into four zones. And so the first one was T one. It was about twenty square miles, and it was an extremely difficult um, terrain. So it was like in a valley that was surrounded on all sides except for one by mountains. So it had this one riverway going through that you access it. Yeah. Perfect for like you know a fortress or Absolutely. like a, a city, a hidden city. Anyways. So, yeah, so he ended up finding some stuff there, too. Um, so this was actually a landscape, like I said, characterized by mountains on all sides. And then I had this unnamed tributary from the River Pau going through it. Like, this is oh. how out there this is. Like, they don't even have names for these rivers. Right. So... That's crazy. I know. Kind of crazy. And so the, as far as they could determine, there had been no exploration done in any of these so far. This was before they got near. And so the Cessna that they used um, ended up, <laughs> they had a bit of a delay. It's kind of funny. So they were all like sitting around this like resort in Catacamas, him and his team. 
and they're paying for this team to be there every day, right? And so the Cessna was delayed by about a week, and so it costed them, like, tens of thousands of dollars. So everyone was just kind of cool in their heels. They weren't very... um, No one was in a good mood, I'll say that. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) And so once they actually got the Cessna in, it became a challenge because the terrain itself was so mountainous. What you have to do is... Okay, so in order to get a high-resolution image, you have to maintain a steady um, distance away from the ground. Yeah. And so all of this, like, it has to be uh, within... I can't remember how they said it. It was, like, within an inch of accuracy every second. So it has to, like, recalibrate and recalculate every second. Wow. And this is tracking in three dimensions, supposedly. And so what they used was this thing that we mentioned in part one, which was an inertial measurement instrument. Right. And this was from the U.S. military. It was highly classified. It's about the size of a coffee can, and it's used in cruise missiles. So it's to track the position in the air. Right. So... (laughs) This means, obviously, there was a bunch of red tape involved in getting this plane down there. Red tape in the U.S., red tape in Honduras, red tape everywhere. everywhere. And then once you get through the red tape in Honduras, you have to grease the palms of everyone, too. So uh-huh. there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of uh, yeah. paying people off. There was and... a lot of uh, American hundreds in the pockets of this crew. Exactly. Ready to, ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. So once they actually got in the air, um, they quickly eliminated T4, which was the fourth territory they noticed right off the bat there was clear signs of illegal um, logging so Ah, mm -hmm. a a major reason for that would be like we discussed already it could be for hardwoods like mahogany but most likely for cattle grazing grounds which is just there's not not, enough space for cows well it's not very how lucrative is that can't be that it's short-sighted to say the least yeah i'd say it's not like this is kobe do you want to end up like haiti people like Mm, no yeah deforestation they got no trees left nothing like now they just got soil erosion they've got no nutrients Can't grow nothing sad anyway it is sad so yeah so they quickly wrote off t4 but t1 was much more exciting indeed so it was extensive at first glance this was even before they beat up on the data quote unquote but it revealed man-made structures including pyramids many mounds um, rectangular uh, foundations of buildings and like plazas and then a square so like you know like how they would have like the main plaza area and they would just that was like their definitely very similar to um like similar to like the maya setup a lot of like ruins and stuff like right yeah you have the central plaza and stuff like that i just wanted to like just to try to i'm just i'm trying to like put myself in this position like when you would first see these these renderings come back Mm -hmm. can you imagine what that like this is this is just a few years ago like this, it's 2019 right now. This, is, this is just a few years they ago, people. So like we are still discovering lost cities of unknown civilizations. <laughs> it's amazing. Just the yeah, that alone. Like you know, like people used to be so caught up on like the treasure side of it and the gold that you would find and whatever else. But like mm-hmm. that's the real treasure to me is actually just finding these cities. It doesn't matter if there's riches or treasures or whatever. That it well yeah exactly it's so much intrinsic value and oh, mm-hmm. it's amazing it's incredible I know. so like to say the least yeah like they were super excited with these finds very promising and Preston actually shared a tiny fraction of the data with Dr Joyce so she's with Berkeley University and she's an archaeologist and she does she is one of the leading um, authorities on like the symbology of like um central american civilizations exactly. and stuff totally yeah. and the artifacts and like what 
yeah, exactly. Like, we'll get into it more when we get into the discussion of, like, what these objects they found could possibly mean. Right. But anyway, so, yeah, severe skeptic, to say the least. Um, he started conversing with her anyway, because he wanted, she was an authority, so he wanted to get her take on things. Yeah. And, of course, like we said, she balked at these LIDAR tactics and criticized the team heavily, even though they actually did invite her to participate. She just, like, said no. And so she she was mm. sent a small portion, so, like, literally, like, a 20th of a fraction of what they had um, uncovered. And she immediately was like, emailed him back and was like, this is huge. This is a big archeological site with many structures, a possible ball court, a plaza, a public space. And she dated them to be about um, 500 to 1000 AD. And so, and so he kind of makes this little, he chuckles a little bit at her reaction because she said it was huge. She only got a 20th of the images that they had. Yeah. So she didn't even have any idea of the extent of this. So no. you could imagine when a few years later, when they actually start publishing what they found, like she might've even been really choked about that. So that kind of hardens her sort of position, right? And well, so and it's entirely her fault. It is. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like I feel no, like, I mean, I don't feel bad for her at all. No, she's an idiot. Like go out. If someone invites <laughs> you to is. go on this expedition, you don't say, Oh, like I'm, yeah, no I'm thanks critical. because I'm, I'm a traditionalist and I would rather take 25 years to find something that could take five days. That is outrageous. It, it is. And I'm actually glad that they went with this other guy. So they actually went with a dude named Chris Fisher. Um, he was with Colorado State University and he actually worked with the Chases on the Caracol project. So he was very familiar with how LIDAR works. He was able to use um, the renderings from the LIDAR imaging with his GPS and he could map it, do his ground truthing quite effectively, mm -hmm. even in this terrain, which was just like a nightmare. Just hardcore, like, yeah. It's incredible what they inter what they went through. It was just, we'll get yeah, into Yeah, and this is just that. people trying to get an image of it. Imagine living in it. I know, right? And building your where you live in it. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty wild. It's not like the Nile Delta and you're building a pyramid along the River Nile. I just and it's that, nice and flat. That scene from... What is it, the Holy Grail, where it's like, they told me I couldn't build my castle in the swamp. <laughs> so I did, and it sank into the swamp. So I built another one, and that one sank into the swamp. So I built a third one, that one burnt down, flipped over, and sank into the swamp. <laughs> I could just see it being like that, though, right? Like, you build a fortress, and then it just gets enveloped in the jungle. And it's like... You'd have to do some serious landscaping, like, on a... Yeah. You'd have to have landscapers by trade mm -hmm. at, in these civilizations, right? Trimming back the palms and, and stuff. And what they now theorize is, like, the half of the sustainability of these cities was the fact that they were garden cities so they were green cities so they right. had terraces they had plants growing everywhere that were medicinal like the gardens um, of babylon exactly yeah so anyways so it was cool. like very integrated so it would have been very green it wouldn't have been like separated right anyways so interpreting these results so chris fisher he looked at t1 and described it as like yeah like a fortress like valley that would have been a highly defensible place of retreat something akin to a medieval castle and mm -hmm. something, you know, like it can raise its drawbridge, so to speak. And so Very he cool. thinks that this could have been part of a strategic zone in pre-Columbian times, probably like an anchor um, to defend um, from invaders. So mm -hmm. it's like a bulwark. So he thought it could have been a bulwark against attacks from the Maya realm. Okay, so possibly, because we were going we're gonna to get into that. We're going to get into that, because they do think that there was probably trade connections and possibly warfare between these two. Interesting. Yeah. It wasn't the Ulocks then. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Mm, okay. But apparently, um, Chris was actually way more enthralled with T3. This was a target zone three. He believed that this could actually outmatch the core of Copan, 
which is the largest um, city center that has since been discovered in this area. That's pretty profound to pretty, suggest. Pretty cool. So he, before he even made any of these sort of um, indications or interpretations, he took all of these LIDAR images and studied them for about six months. Yeah. So he took half a year and then he presented his findings to the team. And so he concluded that this river Pau was like the most extensive. There's about 19 settlements strung along there. And that he believed it was probably part wow. of the same chieftain um, at one point. That's an, ex- oh, man, that is, that's extensive. Yeah. Like, that is a long distance. It's not just one centralized spot. No. It's now, now it's moving out. Exactly. So it is debatable whether or not these were independent settlements or whether they were a part of but you would think just for security reasons, they would have had some sort of alliance or some sort of connection. Or centralized power, at least. Exactly. Yeah. Some sort of government. Uh, T2 was interesting as well. They don't really get too involved with T2 in Preston's book. I wonder, they'll probably go and excavate, hopefully, unless it's overrun by deforestation and whatever else. Mm-hmm. But apparently the finds there were a little bit harder to interpret. It wasn't much of a traditional city in the archaeological sense of the word, meaning that there were these complex social structures multifunctional um, buildings, like including agricultural ceremonial areas, cultural like ball court areas, that type of thing. Right, so multiple so it was, different. Exactly, so it seemed to be something a little bit different. But okay. it did seem, this was a quote from Preston, overall, the LiDAR maps proved that the unnamed civilization that had built T1 and T3 had been widespread, powerful, and successful. So that's pretty cool. Definitely. And, yeah. This isn't just some one-off little because that's another thing you you can you can ask it's like what was the rise and fall trajectory how big were some of these other i mean there's so much more we are going to find and this is an ongoing this is an ongoing Mm -hmm. excavation and search too exactly because when we're focusing on is 2015 they already went back in 2016 exactly and there's a documentary that'll be coming out sometime soon and it's making we'll, uh, the festival rounds. We were actually in contact with the production company, Benenson Productions, because yes. we wanted to get a hold of a copy of it so we could watch it for the series. And they said basically right now it's um, being accepted and going to be shown in festivals. And we're kind of hoping to get an interview with Steve Elkins. Fingers but... crossed. Cross your fingers first, exactly. people. We don't know how busy he is, but yeah. <laughs> we're, we're gonna trying. Try. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So it might, be some, it might be a part three or some sort of bonus stuff going along Absolutely, with this. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> so what to make of all of these finds, mm-hmm. eh? Like, Fisher, being a level-headed archaeologist, he agreed with the skeptic's perspective when he was asked by Preston if the White City had finally been found. And he kind of just laughed and said, like, there's not one, but many White Cities. True. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess that's a, that's a thing where I, I read that response and I'm like, time will tell whether or not this one is the White City or not. Um, exactly, because you get so many different interpretations. Right? You get yeah. White City, you get White House, you get um, Monkey God. The Lost City, yeah, the Monkey right? God. So are all these just different things that have been conflated? Like, we kind of yeah, like Yeah, time. totally. Are these multiple locations, or are these just generational descriptions of the same place? Obviously, Steve yeah. Elkins wanted to map the whole Mosquita. That was a little too pricey. Eventually, it will be mapped. Exactly. And uh, maybe there will be even bigger settlements discovered Mm -hmm. but it's funny though because fisher like this was a quote from him he said the myth of the white city is real in the sense that it holds intense meaning for hondurans but for archaeologists it's mostly a distraction so i feel like that's such a modern take though (laughs) i wrote this in here i was like by this point perhaps we can call the white city or make it synonymous with like the white whale so it's a symbol uh, of a lost culture of the mosquito, right? Right. Yeah. 
So it's I, not a real place. It's a it is a place, but it's it's an abstraction. It's you know what I mean. I, I suppose Zerzura falls into that category too. Definitely falls into that. It, you know, it was just it's funny to think back and see how different the perspective was though for like guys like a, we we referenced him in uh, part one like a Percy Fawcett looking for the lost city of Z as an example, and he was a member of the Royal Geographic Society and things mm-hmm. like that, and that was a very serious organization, but they were obviously following a lot of myths and legends and things like that that we wouldn't today. True. Um, and you have to believe sometimes to be able to find stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that it that it's true in the paranormal, and I feel like it's true in archaeology and things like that too, and I feel like this Steve Elkins is very similar to almost like the Heinrich Schliemanns of yes. the world that we referenced in the Minotaur episode, and also um, his oh. counterpart there as well, who I can't remember, remember the name off the top of my head, but the, the gentleman who went looking for the Minotaur's labyrinth, right? Mm-hmm. And found... And Evans. Per- Evans. Yeah. So... You gotta have a little bit of a... A little bit of both. A little bit of both. A little bit of the mythos, a little bit of the history, a little bit of the, the, yeah, like the statements from people on the ground. But I thought right. that was interesting. Is this a white whale? That kind of thing. But anyways. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. And of course, well, we get the first <laughs> inklings, though, that this could very well be the white city, or at least the civilization that would have possibly built another exactly. city that is the white city. And you when... have to wonder, too, like, white city... We, we already alluded to this, too. Mm-hmm. It just refers to the building material, the limestone. Exactly. And, or it could even refer to the cliffs that surrounded a city that looked like a white wall from a, like from a distance kind of thing. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that every structure is white or something like that. It's True, a, yeah. yeah. So, all right. So at, after the team had kind of had these presentations by Fisher, they kind of uh, went back and forth. There was debate as to which area they would sort of focus in on. And Fisher was lobbying hard for T3 because he thought it was the most extensive. He thought it could hold the most significance for the region and just for future research aims. But in the end, Elkins decided to ground truth T1. So this was the same white whale he'd been chasing for 20 years. Crazy. (laughs) And so for the next two years, um, up to 2015, he was preparing an expedition to explore these remote valleys. The remote valley of T1 specifically. Right. They did have plans to kind of go to T3 too if they could. I think uh, in the end, though, it was weather kind of, um, it, it halted it for the 2015 expedition, but then in 2016, they went in. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we're still waiting to, to hear back on some of that stuff. Exactly. Oh, man. It's kind of uh, sitting on pins and needles a little bit, thinking about what that dock is going to have in it. I'm super excited. Oh, I know. Um, but of course, we had the boots on the ground February 14th, 2015. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a funny uh time of year to be heading into this type of uh <laughs> boots on the ground i think they actually went to Kaikamas on t- february 14th and then they were on in the actual t1 area by the 18th I okay think. i mean well they had started their journey over yeah. there they were uh they weren't sitting poolside anymore. exactly yeah. um <laughs> and uh, they actually had a guy um i mean we've talked about how dangerous the jungle is and things like that but there's more than just the jungle um to be concerned about <laughs> and they actually ended up hiring um this guy by the name of bruce heineke uh, who was essentially like a professional smuggler slash... Fixer. Uh, yeah. They called he, him a fixer. They called him a fixer because he could essentially just get in and out of any situation. He's whether greasy. he was dealing with military, drug smugglers, uh, any but anyone. He mm-hmm. was, yeah, just a classic, yeah, greasy character. He was almost like he reminded me of a character out of like Tin Tin or something. <laughs> or something like that. Like out of a movie. He reminded me of a character from like Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like because he did a lot of like cocaine smuggling uh, in his prime, uh-huh. and then he ended up retiring from that, 
he got shot in the leg at one point and narrowly escaped with his life. And then his wife ended up getting, one of her relatives got killed by drug smugglers. So they went up to the U.S. for a few years to live. And then he went back down um, to kind of restart his activities uh-huh. there, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And then that's, yeah, I don't know how he ended up finding Steve Elkins, but like Steve found him and it was, the way that it was described is like they were total opposite people. Yeah. Where Steve wanted to be everyone's friend, he trusted everyone, he wanted everyone to be on his side and he was very excitable, almost like a puppy dog. And then on the flip side, Bruce Heineke was the one that was always, he always had like a big fat stogie hanging out of his mouth and, and he was always like, you know, like <laughs> he had his little like flask and or not a flask, what was it? I can't remember. But anyways, he was just ob- always There's a photo of him too. in Preston's book, and it's pretty funny. It's awesome. It's yeah. so good. But he ended up dying in 2013. Yeah. Unfortunately. Was it a heart attack or something? Yeah. It was, like yeah. Anyway, he he did mention, though, who, like, I mean, yeah, only two ways to get in and out of the Mosquito, though. The Rio uh, Patu- uh, Patuca and the Rio Platano, which is the rivers that we referenced with uh, Theodore Moore yeah, Day, right? Yeah, the Banana River. Yeah. And uh, Preston Plantains. actually referenced in his book that heading up the Rio uh, Patuca, quote, life has no meaning. It's basically one of the most dangerous places you can go. Yeah. People are getting... People don't go there because you will most likely get robbed and shot and exactly. never, never be found again. Heineke had a story to tell about how he was up there and he had been smuggling artifacts out with a partner of his and they had two contacts, two Honduran contacts in the place where they were going to get these artifacts. They ended up going to get them. Um, they got jumped or the guys just decided they were going to kill them after taking their money. And so he ended up shooting both of them. <laughs> and, and then um, when they were getting out, he ended up almost getting killed by a Jaguar. <laughs> and so he had to shoot it. And then they ended Crazy. up just like, they had to just put it in the river and oh, just let sucks. it. You know, and he, he even said to Preston, he's like, I felt so shitty killing that Jaguar because... It was such a beautiful animal, but it was deadly, so, yeah. Yeah, hardcore place. I mean, even before they departed for T1, they actually ended up meeting with the U.S. ambassador to Honduras. Um, I don't know if he still is. He is, James James Nelon. Yeah. So, yeah, during this visit, he was kind of just informing them on the general... Yeah, just the general situation with Hondurans, essentially, and Preston references this phrase cognitive dissonance that kept coming up over and over again that the ambassador was referencing, which essentially he was just trying to say that the state of having these, well, I mean, the word simply means having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, right? Mm -hmm. And what he's essentially trying to say is that this is a this is a politically unstable place and just a generally unstable place. And there's no real common history because of yeah. the colonialism and the the way things have gone over centuries now, not just decades, exactly. even though the most recent decades have been catastrophic politically for Honduras. Mm-hmm. Um, and that because of this, I mean, it's this, volatile. It's volatile. Long and even short. like it said here, it's like, especially what this means is having these inconsistent thoughts or beliefs or attitudes relating to behavioral decisions and attitude changes. So you could encounter someone and they could just abruptly just do a 180 on you kind of thing. Right. And it could, it's like, like you can say, Oh, it's a, it's a cultural variant kind of whatever, but it was, yeah, the word to use is volatile to say the least. Yeah. And, and it's, and it has a lot to do with less lack of history. And that's why this expedition is so important. Mm -hmm. And that's why these, the government like, I wouldn't call it interfering. Like the government involvement is understandable and important, obviously. The government involvement in the, uh, the expeditions here, but then also non-intervention on the part of like Mosquito is essentially considered the realm of drug smugglers and of the illegal trafficking and all that stuff. So it's kind of their area. So you have yeah. to be really careful. It's just like you're on, 
yeah, exactly. You're in their territory. You're... It's and even Bruce Heineke, like he said here, he's like, Hondurans don't give a damn about life. Life is meaningless to most of them, which is kind of effed up, right? And almost to me that the, all of that describes someone who is, say, um, addicted to drugs. That seems like how someone would behave to me, right? If they're if they have, like, yeah, these inconsistent, like, they're just, like, irrational, like, whatever. I'm not saying that all Hondurans no, are like that. No, of course not. We don't want to obviously stereotype here, no. but we're talking about the places even Juan that are... Carlos, he was a part of the team. He yeah. was a LIDAR engineer. So it's not as if this is just an American perspective on Hondurans. This was, like, coming from within. Right. And describing just the general Totally. State, and I if guess. you're when you're in a state like that for such a long time, then, yeah, it's obviously going to lead to... Yeah, it's obviously going to lead to, yeah, volatile situations. But it wasn't just that. I mean, we talked about the animals... Mm -hmm. Part one. And one of the funny things that Preston references is that actually they needed a lot more anti-venom than they brought with them. (laughs) Um, They were suggested by the military to bring at least 20 anti-venom doses and they only ended up bringing in seven. And those were so expensive, apparently. Yeah. It's really hard to get your hands on those. Yeah, well, yeah. For, specifically for the Fleur de Lance, I believe. Because that's the, that's the hardcore one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, they ended up, uh, adding a three-man team of former SAS officers of British intelligence. Uh, Andrew Wood was the main guy heading up that as a protection, and he actually um, ran a business doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, We referenced that as well. So it's like he would be going with um, TV production crews and basically almost like the Bear Grylls type type uh, production teams exactly. for hardcore expeditions into the most dangerous remote places. And that was this guy's business. It um, was called TAFs. Which is pretty pretty wild. Television and film facilitation services. <laughs> yeah, that's that's such an understatement for what he does, right? It is. Because um, he is basically tasked with keeping them alive. Yeah, you are responsible with keeping a full team of full-grown men alive. That's crazy. And you have to imagine, too, like, obviously these guys have their own... They think they're their own authority, but then when they enter this area, no. Like, no. you are a child. You're a baby, and you're being babysat by these people, essentially. Yeah. Like, if you walk 10 feet into the rainforest, you could be lost. Like, it's that dense. And that actually happened to Preston. Exactly. Douglas Preston. Yeah. And we highly recommend that you guys read his book, obviously. Oh the gosh, Lost City yeah. of the Monkey God. It's um, such a great read. Anyway, yeah. Just absolutely bizarre. And we've, uh, obviously, we've, we talked about the bullet ants. We talked about all these types of things in part one. And actually, yeah. Dra- shout out to Drayton. Drayton, um, He yeah. posted on our, in our uh, Facebook forum, um, this guy who was, like, going through the list of, like, insects that are really, really painful. Mm-hmm. Bullet ant was at the top of the list, obviously. And he... He... puts one on his arm and does it and like holy <laughs> crap does that not look like fun i made the comment i was like because he showed like the next day his arm was just really red it wasn't even as red as i imagined though i thought it was going to be like turning black or something or have like a big like welt or something well that's the thing though it's like he literally drops it on his skin it's like super quick and then it's like off like he gets the little bite it's not like it's like on him and really gets into him and that's just a single one <laughs> so these sas guys are talking about grabbing branches that are above you and having a literally a shower of hundreds of bullet ants land on top of you Ugh. you will make it I'll, no uh, you'll, you would have to be airlifted out. you'll go into shock and you definitely yeah. and the scary part was like where this team was this expedition was in this t1 valley um it's like a microclimate and what they experienced was heavy rainfall when literally 20 miles away there was no rainfall and so what that meant was a lot of times helicopters couldn't even land so they couldn't even get airlifted out if they needed to 
So you're kind of just screwed. Yeah. You're stuck there. Just just to give an example of how hardcore this guy is, Andrew Wood, they called him Woody. Woody! Um, he ended up on the very first night, like, grabbed and killed a, a Fur Delance, which is the snake we talked about with his bare hands. So that's a pit viper. Yeah. The most deadly pit viper in all of America. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, sobering experience for everybody in the group, to say the least. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, what's really sad about that, too, is, like, um, Woody didn't actually want to kill the snake, and he grabbed, like, a pronged branch, like a, um, like what you would use for, like, a slingshot or yeah. whatever, and he was, he pinned it to the ground and worked the branch up, and he was going to move it, but once he grabbed it with his hand, he grabbed it right at the neck, and it started spitting venom out, because it, it can, like, spit it, him. it can spit up to, like, 10 feet, I believe. Right. And what happened was it, it started, like, gooing onto his hand, and he started to feel it go into a cut on the back of his hand, and so he, he was going to move it, but he didn't have time, and so he just had to hack its head off. Yeah. <laughs> Which was really sad. And then what they did was they, they were going to eat the snake, but then Woody thought it was best just to leave it hanging where everyone could see, so that, because half the team hadn't even arrived at that point, it was the first night, and so he killed it, and then he told them, he's like, just so you know, these rarely are just, a, like, a single one, they usually are in pairs or more. Yeah. What a thing and they actually did run into another one the next day. They were like traveling through this like um it was just tall grasses and so it was like up to their heads essentially. They're walking through and so you can't really see anything. And the whole team walked past this one like rock and then the last person in the line happened to look down and there was another sleeping fertilizer just literally like t- less than two feet away. So if it had a mind to, it could have just gone whoosh, on any just, one like, of them walking by. Exactly. Oh, it's spooky. It's crazy. Freaky man. Mm-hmm. So once they were airdropped in um, using helicopters, which is like modern technology at its finest, this is kind of interesting. There was a person named Lieutenant Colonel Wiley Joe Osiergas Rodas, and he was part of the Honduran military contingent that was assigned to sort of help these guys out or protect them if they needed it. Mm-hmm. And he actually thought that the only safe area to do the helicopter drop was about 20 kilometers away from the actual site which would have taken them 10 days to traverse just to get to T1. How does that even make sense? It's like, yeah, it'll be more safe for you to have to go through this incredibly dangerous jungle for 10 straight days. Well, no, I wasn't... He meant for the equipment. He didn't mean for the team. (laughs) This is safe for my helicopter. No, but that's what I mean, though. I, I don't get... You mean for the equipment that they're bringing with them? No, like it, it was it wasn't safe to drop the helicopter down in T1 is what he thought. Oh, I see what you so mean. So he okay. was just had a mind for his equipment, not right. the team. He didn't right. give a shit if they had to go. Yeah, but they're the ones in charge of the equipment, so they're directly related to the outcome of the equipment. You got to take care of the No, peeps. no, no. His equipment is the helicopter. He didn't have anything to do with the expedition. Yeah, so the- he was basically saying, "Sure, I have a helicopter and I can safely drop you." 20 kilometers away from where you need to be the site that you're showing me in the valley of t1 isn't good is this me. the same guy they ended, did they ended up use using the same chopper then i don't know i feel like okay anyway that's what, what a dick that's kind of a jerk thing yeah to do. they did they definitely they had two helicopters they used right and right. um yeah so essentially steve won his argument good the team was dropped at the split of these two yeah. rivers these unnamed rivers <laughs> in a small non-treed area. And so they essentially hacked out a base camp using these Tafts people. The Tafts people did all the work. Um, and probably getting free. paid pretty well to do it. I would hope so. Oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? Um, so where are we here? So once established, yeah, they started to explore. And then as they were exploring, the Honduran military team 
came with their 16 special forces soldiers. Yeah. And these guys are hardcore. They were not dropped by helicopter. They just traversed their way from Catacambas, I believe. Which yeah, is they just trekked 20 it miles in. away. So, yeah. I mean, they're obviously trained to deal with the jungle, unlike the uh, <laughs> the archaeologists who just had their briefing before. And it was funny, too, because they were stationed there to kind of help against, like, um, say, like, if poachers showed up or if, um, like, illegal drug smugglers or whatever. Yeah. But then what they ended up doing is uh, causing, ero- like, ecological erosion because they were started hunting and they <laughs> they were just living off the land while they were there and right. they were hunting this really extremely rare form of deer that's like protected but anyways classic yeah great job guys anyway (laughs) but they were helpful like if they weren't there then who knows what could have potentially happened well they definitely had to be there obviously yeah so once they started to get more established they went chris fisher led a gps expedition along this one they went up this like huge hill that was actually a pyramid and could you imagine so you're you were literally dropped on top of what you saw mapped out on lidar but you can't see it no you know it's there but the jungle's taking it over so cool and what they found was pretty pretty neat so we're gonna get into that but i guess we got our promo break yeah quick promo break and uh this week uh shout out to our friend adam benedict over at the pine barons podcast Mm -hmm. um a show that gets into a lot of the same stuff that we love obviously with cryptozoology and sort of strange (laughs) uh, paranormal phenomena so take a listen to this promo and make sure to go check out uh pine barons institute Since 1848, monsters have run through Wisconsin unchecked. They have taken up residence in the vast forests, fields, and lakes within the state. They move around in the darkness and try to keep their presence hidden, but thankfully, that is coming to an end. The people no longer need to fear what they cannot see in the Badger State. And we owe this change to the Pine Barrens Institute. The Pine Barrens Institute was established to bring you all the information necessary to keep these monsters in check. It is our goal to research, document, and spread only the most truthful information on these once-feared creatures. Rest assured, you will no longer need to fear swimming in a dark lake and wondering what kind of serpent is lurking just below your feet. You will no longer need to be afraid of walking into the dark woods and wondering what giant beast may call this cluster of trees home. You will not need to be afraid anymore. We are here to help. So if you feel your monster knowledge could use some updating, subscribe to the Pine Barrens Institute, Cryptids and Conversations. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and PineBarronsInstitute.com. And we're back. So yeah, make sure to go check out the Pine Barrens podcast. Okay, time for question four of our Coffee Gator contest. And like I said before, you guys can go back and answer the first three questions as well. Yeah, we had some people do that this week, which was kind of yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, and you get your multiple entries. So yeah, get on it because we uh, we just want to give you guys a sweet French press. So right? <laughs> this one is another, it's an easy one. I know you guys are going to know know this. Mm-hmm. So this comes from our Strange Mind of Nikola Tesla episode. All right. What was the name? of the company that Nikola Tesla worked for before he went a little off his rocker. Okay? <laughs> and that's all I'm going to give you. Because, wow. I'm uh, going to give them a little more. This company is still around. Ah. Mm-hmm. 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 There you go. We all actually right. had equipment at our old workplace. <laughs> that was so funny when <laughs> I saw did. it. I was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> and it was anciently old, too. It was just like... Like everything there. 
Definitely. Um, so yeah, uh, head over to our website, intotheportal.com, and it's the first tab there, Coffee Gator Contest, and yeah, you guys can submit your answers, and we'll be doing that draw in a little bit. Exactly, and as always, you can get 15% off your purchase if you go to coffeegator.com and use our promo code QUARK, so Q-U-A-R-K. That's right. At checkout, and yeah, you can drink some better coffee with Coffee Gator. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. That's me trying to sound a... That's about as addy as we can be. Um, (laughs) But it really is uh, awesome. Like, we we are loving this French press. I want to get more of their stuff. That's going to be my new um, go-to for, like, gifts. So if anyone (laughs) anyone has a birthday coming up... uh, (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Just let me know which one. Well, this is definitely going to be better for us around Christmas time next year, but uh, Mm -hmm. anyway. So we're getting into some finds here now. We're getting Mm -hmm. into the juicy stuff. So... There was obviously a whole bunch of different um, aspects of this discovery that were interesting and important, but one of the most stunning discoveries was this collection of, we're going to just call them objects, Mm -hmm. and one of them was the snarling head of a jaguar, which is really cool. Um, That was the first thing that they sort of brushed away the dirt, because like all this was completely, like we said, in situ, so untouched, undisturbed since it was placed there like hundreds of years ago. So the tops were only visible while Mm -hmm. the rest of it was kind of buried beneath the ground. And this was interpreted by Fisher to be, um, you know, a cache, a cache, (laughs) a cache, which is essentially like um, a place where offerings would happen, an Mm -hmm. offrenda. So these were ritual objects in a sense, right? Exactly. Um, where the breaking of them would actually release a spirit or an energy um, implanted in it by a shaman. <laughs> You're getting a little bit ahead of yourself there. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of these objects were actually found uh, broken. Yes. And so that becomes significant, and we'll get into that a little bit more when we're interpreting all this stuff. Okay, but... sounds good. But I think Fisher was most impressed by this jaguar, and of course, how could you not be, right? He actually ended up terming it a were-jaguar. Yeah, and it was like half human, half jaguar. Exactly. Um, originally interpreted as wearing almost some kind of helmet, so a possible connection to the Mesoamerican ball game that we see in Maya civilizations and Aztecs I, as well, I believe. And possibly even the Olmec, too. I can't remember if oh, they were know. if they had um, indications of the ball game. But anyway, mm-hmm. this would obviously be significant if there was this connection to that game. Mm-hmm. That was his initial interpretation. He, like, right. threw that out right it off the It changed later, yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it's still fascinating, though. I mean, it looks like... It's, yeah, I mean, that's his interpretation changed, but others might have not. Mm-hmm. Then there was also a vulture. So... Um, yeah, impressive to the team was essentially this sculpture found in the very middle of this undisturbed cache. And it was basically, yeah, it's been interpreted as a shaman in a state of spiritual transformation into the form of a vulture, mm-hmm. which is pretty... So that's really important. And like, I guess we can get into this a little bit. The idea that shamans or like um, spiritual um, authorities in Meso... Or I'm saying Mesoamerican, but honestly... Mesquita kind of extends past that. Yeah, it's different. Um, it is. So I, that's kind of Central American, ancient, whatever. Exactly. So the shamans, oh, a lot of them sort of ascribe to a specific spiritual animal that they kind of could derive a connection to the spiritual realm. Yes. So that's where you get this, these, inter- or not interpretations, these um, uh, depictions, I guess, these objects like depict this state right. of transformation. And the fact that it was found in the very middle is very significant because the vulture um, is actually deeply tied to the afterlife, right? to say the least on that. So in total, the cache or the collection of objects were roughly, they sort of estimated there was about 200 pieces and that these were undisturbed for centuries and that 
they were kind of curious, like, why are these here? What is the purpose? Mm-hmm. Um, is it an offering, like we said, an ofrenda? Right. Is this from the last residents of the White City? Was this something to appease the gods for whatever caused the people to leave in the first place? Or was yeah. this something that had been collected up over time? They didn't have any answers to that right off the bat because they didn't want to disturb it. Yes. This was the... Okay. So the main significance of this find lies in the fact that it was in situ. So Chris Fisher, as soon as they discovered this and they had photographed it, the team had kind of whatever done whatever they needed to do. And they all went down back to the camp for the night to discuss what they were going to, how they were going to proceed with this cache. And so Steve Elkins and Bill Benenson were both of the mind that they needed to excavate right away because they were afraid that as soon as the team left in 10 days, (sighs) poachers and illegal, whatever, just come and take all of it and it would just be looted. Chris Fisher immediately um, was just irate and he said he would have no part of any excavation that was taking part right now because A, they had no permits to excavate, so it would have been illegal. B, um, the main value of the finds lies in the fact that they are in situ, so you need proper excavation, which means you need all these um, different tools so like chemical analysis needs to be done on the insides of the pots yes um even just like the chemical analysis of the ground on which they lay um all this sort of stuff needs to be taken into effect you can't just yank them out of the ground exactly so he was basically he said he was going to resign from the expedition right away if they were going to touch any of these so they decided to leave them (laughs) thank god because when they went back they actually stationed because they were the honduran government was heavily affiliated with this expedition and they put in the proper protection measures. Yes. Even though there were people that thought that the Honduran military would actually end up looting it. But luckily that didn't happen. Yeah. So, But yeah, there was this interesting quote from Preston here. And he just says here, the ritual collection of artifacts seems to be a special feature of these lost cities of ancient Mosquita. They have not been seen in Maya culture or elsewhere, meaning that they could hold a key to what distinguishes the people of Mosquita from their neighbors and defines their place in history. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're getting possibly some crossover, but some very, very, very distinguishable differences from Maya civilizations and others, which is pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. So heading back to the expedition here, though, they kind of run into a few issues. Um, the progress was literally muddied by rainfall, which obviously in these regions is intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the microclimate, like we mentioned. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So like literally yeah, you'd be getting torrential rainfall rainfall one place and sunny skies and the next valley over right Um, (laughs) it's so funny too when they ended up leaving after their 10 days and they were basically their clothes were rotten by the time they left because there was such an intense amount of moisture (laughs) it's just 100 percent humidity (laughs) exactly and when they so they got airlifted out and then when they were going to get into like their transport vans like the honduran um government had arranged for this and they like looked at the team they asked them very politely preston said to go hose themselves off before they got in because they were shocked they're like why are you guys like covered head to toe in mud when we haven't had rainfall in the last two weeks yeah it was the dry season just in crazy little micro (laughs) micro climates it's bizarre right and of course this mud like turns into quicksand in the jungle um yeah, I mean, so like, and the stuff they're wearing would cause issues with this because they're wearing snake gaiters to protect them against the fur de lance, and these would fill up with mud and essentially become cement boots um, in an already very difficult area to walk in. So, yeah, one of the team, Alicia Gonzalez, she actually almost got sucked under completely. Yeah. She was up to like her boobs, I think. 
that's very up to her waist, let's say. That's like no, but that's like that's something straight out of a movie, mm-hmm. and but it's very very real. It's kind of crazy, and it'll happen very quickly. You'll be walking on that same ter- uh, terrain, you know, an hour before rainfall hits. You're crossing over it, and yeah, you're up. You're up to your potentially completely submerged um, in some cases, right? Uh, exactly. So scary, man. Yeah, but once dropped in, they quickly realized that none of the ruins were visible um, under this thick carpet of foliage, kind of like we mentioned. So the camp is dug out into this pristine rainforest, and yeah, it's just quickly muddied up by human. Yeah, from human uh, treads and the movement of equipment and like the tents and getting set up and everything mm-hmm. like that. So. So very quickly, like, there's pictures they include, and it's, like, it looks like two feet of mud where where they're supposed to, like, walk and stuff. And, like, where once before it was just, like, yeah, pristine wilderness. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny how humans have such a devastating impact on uh, terrain like that. So quickly, too. Yeah, ecology. Definitely. It was really cool, though. Like, as they were getting set up, like, Preston talked a little bit about what he was seeing. And one thing that was really entertaining were these spider monkeys. And as he was, like, he set up his little camp, like, about, like, 20 feet away from everyone else, like, his own little corner. And he didn't realize at first, but Andrew Wood came around and started smelling the tree where he had set up his hammock. And he was like, oh, monkey piss. Hmm. So this is their tree, just so you know. And these spider monkeys were just screaming at him, like, viciously. They were like... And then eventually they sort of calmed down and they were just, like, observing him as if he was, like, a freak in, like, a circus or something. Yeah. (laughs) And it was so funny, too, because these spider monkeys are one of the most um, sensitive in any ecological setting. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as humans are introduced into it, they'll basically disappear. They're just gone. But the fact that they were around was a sure sign that this place had been so long undisturbed and uninhabited by man right and so again they actually did find some other things too like the cacao trees uh this yeah so they found that around the base camp there was a few other varieties of uh, plants that are actually pre pre um conquistador like so pre-colonization varieties that just like were in this one little very cool. one little nugget they were just yeah just saved is almost like a little Oh, one of my picture in my head right now, it's like a snow globe where it's right. just existing in its own little bubble. Definitely. Yeah. So there's a lot to it other than the fact that there was this human settlement that has been long lost or whatever. Um, yeah. Potentially even sort of, yeah, like artificially cleared out agricultural areas, which is pretty crazy. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. An artificially cleared cultural a- agricultural area that would have been a cacao grove. So there was like this one, like, what was it? It was like, um, like a leveled area that was actually elevated. So it could have been like a terrace at one point. And right. that was what he yeah, interpreted yeah. as a cacao grove. Well, and they also, I don't know if you actually included in some of the notes down below here, but um, didn't they also kind of realize that they, there was irrigation? Like they, they had, um, there's evidence of irrigation oh, like systems as well, like for flooding, mm-hmm. um, what would have potentially been these right. types of agricultural yeah. um, terraces. Exactly. So that they could divert water from these river systems. Like tarot fields and all sorts of stuff yeah. like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was very, it was a highly human intervened environment that had been reclaimed by nature in the 500 years that had passed. Right. <laughs> yeah. So after, like, okay, so they went about, they extensively mapped out, like, a lot of different sort of, uh, what am I trying to say here? Like an archaeological feature um, in T1. Didn't make it out to T3 because of the weather. Yeah. But they completed their mission. They got out alive. <laughs> no one no one was emergency airlifted out, which was good. But <laughs> <laughs> 
there was obviously some stuff that came about in the months after, but we'll get into that, I guess. We can talk about that in a minute, yeah, sure. Yeah, but essentially after this whole 2015 expedition had concluded, Elkins made the comment that this is probably going to be the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know how old he is right now? I think he was 68 in 2000. I can't remember if it was 2012 or 2015. He was 68. I think he's in his 70s now. Right. So, I mean, that's... Yeah. I mean... He's getting up there. Getting up there for this type of activity. hmm <laughs> Right? I mean... Well, even Bill Benenson, like, he is um, not a spring chicken himself, so... Yeah. Well, and neither <laughs> was Preston. They, yeah. Preston was an old... Uh, oh, you know, it was so sad, too. Like, Steve, one day that they went um, exploring along this unnamed river, which was the most pristine, beautiful experience Preston describes in his book. Like, he was just like... It's basically just paradise. But while they were there, um, <laughs> Steve got caught up in, uh, like, a cutback. Like, I don't know, he got, like, swept away, and I guess his phone, he had gotten so many photos of this expedition oh, thus far. No, and he lost and them all, all of it was wiped. Like, his phone was destroyed. He actually worked with Apple for about a year to try and recover them, and no Couldn't success. <sighs> this is his life project, like, 25 years in the making, and that happened. So well, he was choked. bring but... a waterproof camera <laughs> <laughs> i always have responses to things like that oh man it's like kramer in the shower episode <laughs> yeah get your waterproof <laughs> phone totally it's making salads in there <laughs> why not gets the garburator installed <laughs> oh man so yeah we've um like we alluded to there's been subsequent expeditions and visits back to t1 and to t3 they did successfully excavate the Ware Jaguar and the Ware, or no, it was just a, a vulture figure, the shaman vulture thing, right. along with like hundreds of other artifacts. And it was led by Chris Fisher again and a team of like Honduran American archaeologists. And of course, President Juan Carlos Fernandez, he <laughs> was down there, like he ended up taking out the first object, right? which was the, uh, the, um, Oh, shoot. Which was it? It was the vulture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is a quote from Douglas. He wrote up a Nat Geo piece shortly after. This is like the day after the artifacts were unearthed. He says, the vessel personally removed yesterday by President Hernandez is a spectacular specimen carved in basalt. The rim of the jar depicts two animal figures, one of which might possibly represent the head of a vulture common to that area. The vessel is one of 52 stone sculptures... Uh, discovered in the February expedition. So that's actually 52 stones. So that's a definite um, under underestimation of the 200 that yes. we saw referenced. Yeah. So maybe they meant 200 pieces, I like broken. The, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So essentially, yeah, this February expedition, which had been deposited at the base of an earthen pyramid in the central part of the city about five to 800 years ago and left untouched ever since. Uh, and then, of course, he says again, like, yeah, the very, only the very tops of these sculptures could seen, be seen protruding from the ground. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so this act- this one specimen that Hernandez removed was actually um, the inspiration for the new name of T1. They've since called it the Valley of the Jaguar. Interesting. It's just pretty cool. The Valley of the Jaguar. Oh, and another really, really cool thing. Fisher kind of alluded to this idea that there might be royal burials beneath these artifacts. That's something that I wanted to get into because obviously I'm a treasure hunter by mm-hmm. nature and the, uh, yeah, the, where, the idea that there could have been other artifacts beyond what was seen at the original uh, cache with the Ware Jaguar and stuff, maybe co- possibly gold, um, 
things like that. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. we have some linguistic connections um, that mm-hmm. could link them to being, uh, you know, interested in gold and stuff like that. Exactly. So just to, we called them objects and we didn't get into that too much, but essentially what all these were, were metates. And what a metate is, it's very highly significant in Central American cultures and usually it could be ceremonial, so it could be just symbolic or it could be an actual functional object and it was just used for grinding corn. Right. So they had a bit of, like, they would rock back and forth and they would grind corn into flour. And these ones that they found at the cache at T1 were too big and too awkward to theoretically be used for like a functional sort of reason. Mm -hmm. So they thought that this was just, um, it was probably more so, um, yeah, just ceremonial and sacrificial. So the breaking of these objects, these beautiful objects that, because corn again was highly symbolic and highly significant, right? It was like basically like gold to them. Absolutely. It was, Mm -hmm. of course it was golden in color. And then, yeah, it was gold because it was their main source of food and they could do so many different things with it, whether it was making, yeah, corn flour or just use, there's a whole bunch of different things that the ancient peoples did. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we, you found a connection. Okay. Are we kind of moving into the discussion here then? I guess so. Okay. Yeah, because, like, they uncovered this cache. There's a bunch of objects. They're probably going to make subsequent expeditions. We haven't heard anything about that yet, so we're not sure. Maybe they're there right now. (laughs) They could be. They very well could be, like, today as we record. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so we're getting into the discussion, and there's obviously some key questions we've been bringing up throughout the episodes here, but who were these people in the Mosquito jungle? We know that they weren't remnants of the Mayans. They're not Maya. They're not Maya. Could potentially be remnants of Mayan peoples, right? As, right, but as they their weren't in and of themselves Maya that had Ooh. moved from one Maya location into the Mosquito Range. No. If anything, remnants of the Maya collapse could have been integrated into an already existing culture. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're dealing with who they were, obviously, and we've got a few things to go off of for that. Not Maya, but their territory represents an endpoint of the Maya realm, like you just said. Mm-hmm. The ruins are a distinct archaeological style, though. They mm-hmm. are different than the other Central American archaeological sites we look at. So, in terms of mounds, buildings not made of carved stones, but rather other materials. So, like, mm-hmm. including pebbles, mud, wood, things exactly. that other places didn't have. Not carved um, limestone. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is a quote from Preston, too. Um, Archaeologists so far have not been able to answer some of the most basic questions of this culture, who they were, where they came from, how they lived, and then, of course, the most important one, what actually happened to them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, of course, that's what he's trying to figure out, as along with the team. Mm-hmm. But even modern Hondurans are completely in the dark. So, like, the scars of the colonial era and the genocide of culture, essentially, over the centuries, there's no oral tradition even, like, of remnants of, like, what this once was. Mm-hmm. We're really left with almost nothing. It's almost as if the only remnants we have are people saying, like, oh, there is, th- those are of a different people before yeah. our time. Exactly. That's all you get. Which is weird, right? Because obviously these are indigenous peoples. And one of the um, gentlemen from the expedition, so this Juan Carlos, who was one of the LIDAR engineers, he's a Honduran. Mm -hmm. And he said, the people of Honduras don't have a clear cultural identity. We have to start learning more about our past in order to create a brighter future. Yeah, It's almost a bit of a cliche to say that, but it's not in the case of Honduras because they literally don't have a cultural identity. Mm -hmm. 
like the way like the history. like the way um, people do in Mexico and other places where yeah. they can look at their ancestral heritage and exactly. like and draw black lines to that right totally. there's a connection mm-hmm. yeah so anyway but they're working on it right i mean it's uh, this discovery is is important it really is and like obviously with the political factors the desperation of uh, social economic things like the poverty illegal drug trade it's just become more and more important to people including the president right like this is a huge political aim for him and like if he can rally the people behind him and create this sort of cultural ethos and identity then that's huge massive totally yeah and there's definitely shaky grounds politically speaking in honduras this guy was actually the last president before him was deposed he was like (laughs) he was put on a plane in his pajamas (laughs) is that right well he he yeah he was ousted from his position he was the president uh apparently the honduran military came and got him from his presidential palace or whatever it was and then in a very clever turn of events he he did have time to change but he changed back into his pajamas for the photo shoot of him getting on the plane to the <laughs> i think it was nicaragua he was sent to okay anyways interesting <laughs> kind of funny side note yeah, yeah sure so yeah so all this desperation you know what was interesting though like getting back to the whole idea that even like the local indigenous people don't have the history themselves during the 2015 expedition, uh, one of the anthropologists on the team, her name was Alicia Gonzalez, and she visited with the elders of a local Peck people that are pretty much the closest to the Valley of T1. Right. And so she was kind of going along. They were very, very helpful and, and just friendly. They actually gave her a four-pound block of pure, unsweetened cocoa. Wow. Which was kind of insane. Like, that's a huge gift. Yeah. But um, she started to inquire about the White City or Casablanca, like the White House. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this one elder who was in his 80s, and he was a peck elder. And he declared that this White House had been desecrated by the gringos long ago. So this is where you're getting influence of conquista which is kind of weird right but it says here so casablanca is up in the mountains it's where the sukia went the shamans and it is controlled by the shamans this is a very ancient place a bewitched place or sorry a bewitchment place inhabited by people before the peck that was what he said to her so that to me i was like whoa ancient place so like controlled by shamans so this kind of we had just covered kenosis and the whole, like, island of Crete and that sort of mythology. I was like, could this have been, like, sort of a, a monastery of the mountains? Like, it's surrounded on all sides by mountains, which are hugely significant um, in speaking of, like, the afterlife and just religious and, and um, sacrilegious kind of uh, Absolutely. connotations. Totally. I, I think there's some fascinating connections So could it have been? The one thing that I was using in my mind, which is totally me just conjecturing away, but, like, was... T3, the main city center, because it's a lot bigger, it's like Copan. Right. And then this one was more like a monastery, like a place of religious importance. Yeah, where you're making these, uh, yeah, where the shamans would, I guess it wouldn't be really a pilgrimage because it's close by. But like, yeah, they go there as specifically been, for religious sacrifice, for religious... Ceremony, for religious, um, like just to um, commune. Right. Because like, that's how they would get closer to the spiritual realm is to go into caves, to go into mountains, to go into all this stuff, into the underground. This is, it's actually kind of crazy how much this ties into next week's episode too, I'm realizing at the moment here. but um, (laughs) So many connections. (laughs) I'm not even going to say it. Actually, I'm going to, synchronicities, man. (laughs) Oh, Uh, Oh, well, yeah. All right. So that was just me kind of conjecturing. Like this seems to me like, 
could lead to some sort of interpretation like that, but I am not a archaeologist. Right. I do not have expertise in this. <laughs> anyways, the population of T1 is quite massive, though. So this, again, does speak to the idea that it was a city or a metropolis more than just, like, a place of religious worship. And it had a population that was probably in the thousands at its prime. This was estimated by Chris Fisher upon excavation, or the expedition in 2015. Right. And like we mentioned before, there's a total of 19 settlements discovered along the valley, along this unnamed river. And it was kind of interesting, like this, like I did allude to before, it's a green city. It's basically, Preston compared it to the appearance of an overgrown English garden, full of bounties and all these things of nature that were highly useful and were... Um, highly integrated into the culture and the everyday of these people. Right, like medicinal plants and things like that. Exactly. So, okay, before the result of the LIDAR, pre-conquest population estimates in Honduras was approximately um, 150,000 total. And so for every square mile, they roughly estimate about 30,000 people. Does that make sense? No, did I say that? Would have been three, maybe. Sorry, maybe 3,000. Oh, I think they were working. That's sort of an awkward phrasing, anyway, because Mm -hmm. I think they're only specifically referencing, like, the mapped. Well, that was before. That's a ballpark estimate. That was before the results of LIDAR. And then after, it was almost like, I I believe it was like sevenfold that they estimated the population. So significantly more people in these remote (laughs) areas, right? Totally. That's the important part to take out of that. (laughs) Exactly. So the whole, yeah, exactly. It was a thriving metropolis, city center, highly human intervened, not the jungle that we see today. Yeah. I don't know why I'm reminded right now, but we forgot to mention it off the top. Um, Kind of a diversion here, but we totally forgot to, uh, we, we made not an error, but like it definitely was Cortez that oft Montezuma we said Mm -hmm. in the last episode we were like I think it was might have been Cortez but we didn't actually look specifically into that story yeah we looked at Cortez related to the white city Mm -hmm. but uh it definitely was it was anyway (laughs) back on track here back on track (laughs) (laughs) all right so since 2015 there's been a lot going on yeah so 2016 was this revisitation of this in-situ cache at T1 by Chris Fisher and Juan Carlos, and they had hoped to reveal more of the secrets of these sort of mysterious mosquito peoples, but we're mm-hmm. getting closer, right? And upon excavating for about a month, which, because they're really taking their time, obviously, mm-hmm. one of the only to have been professionally excavated out of these, out of these oh, things that have been sites. found, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so over 200 objects were revealed, one of the most extensive concentrations of wealth ever discovered mm-hmm. in one cache, yep. essentially, in a, in a location like this. That's pretty profound. That means that this civilization was obviously advanced. We know that already. But that they were, their stratification, their social stratification was such that... It's highly um, detailed and, oh, what am I trying to say? uh, Like... Specialized. Highly specialized. Yeah. Exactly. Highly specialized economy, lots of trade, lots of everything. Right. Okay. So, where are we going here? The cash was (laughs) interpreted as a shrine at this point. Yeah. So on the second... So like so we said, an offering. An offering. So like, I mean, but this is obviously tying into what you're, you were mentioning before, like the idea of like a Canosos-like area where it is just for this purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's significant because of the connection to the caves and to the mountains and where it's actually in situ, not just the cache in situ, but the religious place overall. Kind of, yeah. And I will just say right now... Um, <laughs> that this was a place of offering. This was a one-time offering. These weren't placed here over a period of, of years or decades or centuries. It was all placed at the exact same moment. Right, so what Which does that comes say? into play with 
wh- why, right? right? But we'll get into that in a sec here. Okay. Mm-hmm. So some of the materials that we're seeing with this, though, is like hard uh, rhyolite and basalt, just like the basalt heads of the Olmec, um, things like that. And they weren't, this was brought in, like these types of materials, right? They weren't quarried right right there at the site. No. Um, it was of North American, or sorry, not North American. It was of Central American origins, mm-hmm. but not of the same location, suggesting a network of trade in finer stone with other communities. Right, mm-hmm. which is pretty important, obviously. It's just who were these other communities and what went sour with them, potentially. Oh, the Muisca, the peoples of the El Dorado legends could have been one. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a linguistic connection to them, right? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, but the crafting of these objects was, of course, done by hand and grinding the stones, like, with other handheld rocks. So no hammers and chisels. This is very old school, but they're so detailed. It's bizarre. Like, it's it's pretty impressive, right? It is really cool. And only a special class of artisans would have been able to create them. So, again, this social stratification of the city. Exactly. Um, and these highly specialized trades. Mm-hmm. And the ability for people to focus on these highly specialized trades in their life, right? And that would have been multi-generational. Exactly. It wouldn't have just been... A father and son were like the best blacksmiths or whatever, right? Like this was, this means that this place was at its at its prime for like a while. Yeah, which is pretty several impressive. generations at least. Yeah. yeah. Where am I at here, Amber? I'm sorry. Um. Well, we're just getting into more of the detail here. So, like, yeah, like we said already, these were described as metates. So normally these connotate a stone that's used for grinding corn. Right. These were more exceptional, more particular, and not as um, convenient for actually a, a, like a function. So they actually believe now that uh, that they were for religious. And actually, some of the bigger ones could have been used as thrones. Okay. Which is kind of interesting. And they almost look like a little seat, and they've got like an animal, usually like figurine on it or something like that. You can you know you can Google them. They're quite they're around. But it's interesting because, like we said, like, corn is very significant yes. to to just Mesoamerican and just Central American and, and even South American. Just general American. Definitely. <laughs> Everyone in America. <laughs> corn is important. Corn, corn is important. Corn is important today, too, hey? Like, we eat corn in basically everything. Uh, corn much. syrup, everything. Like, there's so many. There's, like, hundreds of derivatives and products that we use which we're yeah, <laughs> not getting into today. Yeah. But this creation myth, there was a Maya, so Maya, not Mosquita, creation myth that actually tells of humans being born from corn dough. It's like the first humans were made from corn. There was another one I came across as like the first humans were monkeys. Like, you know, there's all sorts of different. Right. The, the humans made with corn dough almost sounds uh, golem-like. Or like the Adam and Eve, right? Oh, the Adam yeah. was the first golem. Forming like something out of dough matter. or out of clay. Or yeah. Of, yeah. Actually, that makes... Oh, that's really cool. Sort of a similar like crossover that. and creation myth oh, I there. like it a lot. Yeah, yeah. And then, as I alluded to, like, yeah, like the idea that these metates could have been used as, um, like, thrones. Or sometimes they're actually found on top of graves, like tombstones. And some people believe that they could have been used as seats for carrying the dead to their final resting place. It's kind of the interpretation there. Again, all kind of conjecture. Right. Um, And, oh, another really cool part about this was that the cache was discovered at the base of a pyramid on a special floor made of red soil, so specially prepared. It was smoothed and, yeah, it, it was ready to display these objects. And they were all arranged around the central figure of a vulture, so this representation of a transformed shaman. Right. Symbol of death, possibly. Symbol of death. Yeah. Symbol of the the vulture was uh, trans 
transitory figure between the living and dead realms. Yes. And yeah, and so it was really cool. They couldn't actually do carbon dating because of erosional factors that long wash away any relevant organic materials. Mm-hmm. But despite it, they used style and the materials to kind of date it in about the 1000 to 1500 AD range. So later than the actual settlements, as as what Joyce, Dr. Joyce kind of figured, it was roughly between 500 AD to 1000 AD is when the first sort of settlements and structures could have started Yeah, appearing. so this is off by... But it does, it it gets more significant, right? Because these were placed here at once. The figure of death is central. What is this? Is it the death of a city? That's a good question. I mean, if this was the one-time offering in that T1 cache that they found, then that would imply that something very, very, very dramatic happened. Mm -hmm. And that, that takes away from one of the explanations here that Preston thinks is very likely in his book that um, disease made its way through, in my opinion. Because it would have, well, we'll, we'll get, I'll give you my opinion on that when we get to it in a sec. Yeah. I'm of the opposite mind. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay. We've got conflicting. Right. There you go. That's perfect. So, all right. <laughs> we got that. But yeah, so these objects were dated to about 1000 to 1500 AD, which that makes sense because they could have been made in 1000 AD, been around for 500 years and then ritually destruct, dis- destroyed hmm. at 500 Possibly. AD. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I had some few notes here on just Mesquita architecture in general. It's kind of a side note, but... It's <laughs> okay, throw that. it out, because we're trying to figure out who the hell these people are. Well, exactly. So, we did allude to the idea that there was different building materials for these ruins, and they're... Okay, so just an important distinction between the cultures of Mosquita and Maya. So, the Mosquita people didn't build with cut stone. They constructed their public edifices out of river cobbles, earth, wood, wattle, and duob. So it's basically just like glue. Well, yeah. <laughs> and so while these buildings were remarkable and they would have been highly ornamental, decorated, painted, all this kind of stuff, and as remarkable as some of these great temples of the Maya, once they were abandoned, they would have decayed a lot more quickly. So that kind of adds to the mystery and the recovery efforts, right? Because this just makes it that much more... It messes with the timeline, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, because you get this erosional um, taking place... <laughs> erosional. This erosion taking place... <laughs> well, no, erosional in effect or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So there isn't any definitive answers about the nature or function of these mounds or pyramids or whatever, but it's most likely just temples and has some sort of religious connotation. Um, does sort of suggest a similar preoccupation with astronomy. There was this one object found in that cache of T1 that appears to be an abstract representation of the night sky. So again, kind of uh, sort of an association with the Maya. Okay, yeah, that's definitely some crossover there. I mean, it's not that far off to think that, like, obviously these Mosquita peoples would have had advanced, like... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like had like their own esoteric knowledge. <laughs> well, possibly, <laughs> but had their own astronomy um, and potentially their own sort of variations of belief on this on the solar system and stuff like that. You'd have to like yeah, if they're that um, advanced with their stone um, 
technologies, then you would think that maybe they, yeah. Yeah. One of the other precedents in archaeology, though, um, that may help give answers to this mosquito range that um, we wanted to reference, it almost deserves its own mini-sode in and of itself. Um, But that's the the cave of the glowing skulls. Mm. Um, So the Talgua Caves that are in Honduras. And they were discovered in 1994 in the Olancha Valley of Catamacas. Or sorry, Catacamas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm struggling today. Um, In Honduras by uh, two Peace Corps volunteers. So the site was, um, it was super old. It was an ossuary. So like where bones were kept, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Containing the bones of hundreds of individuals that were carefully interred with marvelous, like, they were, sorry, like... Marvelous marble vases. That's a phrase right there. Marvelous marble vases. That was me getting colorful. A little colorful, yeah. No, but essentially, obviously, this was a ritualistic site that they had stumbled across here. So the bones were calcified, preserving mm-hmm. them in an extremely unusual fashion. Because they would have just um, been eroded. Right. Like, just so they weird. were glittered in the caves as if they were made of crystal because of this. So they were, they were not normal. And mm-hmm. then, of course, on top of this, the skulls were strangely elongated. <laughs> we didn't get any more um, clarification on that. <laughs> well, I'm clearly it's from some sort of a ritualistic head binding. Yeah, but probably. But the ancient alien uh, peoples would uh, jump right on top of that uh, mm-hmm. front and center. Mm-hmm. But uh, of course, it's but the point is that it's this ritualistic place, and it was dated to be around three thousand years old. Mm-hmm. And they were very ritually ritualistically placed, like they had. They'd been left, the bodies that appeared to have been left to desiccate, probably what I would imagine, because we've looked into this a little bit, but I would imagine it would have been a process where they just leave the bodies out in the open for vultures to kind of pick away at, and it would have been left high up on like a, you know, like a sacrificial kind of like plateau or something. And then what they would do is then take the bones, clean them, and then paint them with red ochre. And then that's where they were found in these caves. It's really sad, though, once literally the day after, like, they they try and keep it all hush-hush because as soon as you announce something like this, you're going to get looters, you're going to get all sorts of people coming in. Yeah. And that's essentially what happened. And only the farthest reaches of these caves, which were quite extensive, were left untouched by these, like, because they were just lazy. They went to the easy ones. And it was sad. Like, they'd come back um, after a day of excavation. They'd leave it overnight, come back. They'd find... Oh, so much destruction, bones smashed, like, because a lot of them, they were taking them to use, to sell in markets and things like that. Yeah. Really sad. Yeah, it's sad. Like you said, these these were, um, these were about 3,000 years old, internments taking place over the course of a thousand years, so that takes our timeline back quite a bit further. 1,000 BC. Exactly. So a thousand, yeah, so a thousand BC, so that gives us roughly 1,500 years of silence where we don't know anything there's a gap and then we get 580 onward is like the regenesis so who knows so this is where that gap could have been from the collapse or the 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 yeah the collapse of the maya essentially and some sort of southern migrations possibly is that working out timeline wise no no that's no (laughs) no because like so when was the collapse of the Maya again? I'm getting confused. The collapse of the Maya was roughly 1080. Right. So so this is a 2000 years before that. Then. Exactly. So 2000 years, so the it would have been roughly about 0 AD is what I'm picturing in my head would have been the rough ending of these bones being put in this ossuary in this cave. Interesting. So okay, so that actually no, actually now that I'm thinking about it, so 3000 years old, so we're at 
2019. So that takes us back to exactly that, like roughly 3,000 years. So we, we, it's a roughly, Preston said it was a thousand year gap, but I would say it's roughly a 500 year gap. Okay. But you know. So I mean, we it's, don't it's, know it's who all, these are. It's all just estimates. Though. Yeah, of course. Let's just say that. Yeah. <laughs> because let's not get too hung up. But on I that. mean, the, the point of referencing these skulls, though, is just like who who were put like who was putting these skulls in that. Exactly, and it's distinct from Maya tradition, so you can't say the Maya were responsible for that. No. Even though they did practice cave burials, the arrangements and the artifacts that were left alongside the bones were very distinct. Right. So not, and they were obviously found in Honduras. So. Okay, so this is so that's what that's my point then. It's like, couldn't there have been? I mean, there had to have been. There were people there then, right? Like this, yeah. the 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 peoples of Mosquita that they're estimating, like really came to rise in a thousand AD exactly. or whatever. It's so like, roughly even like at the tail end of the Egyptians. Yeah. Pretty yeah. impressive. Mm-hmm. Very so cool. It's very ancient. Very cool. Right. Yeah. So it's not just, yeah, it goes a lot further than what people kind of originally thought. Definitely. So despite the fact that this is distinct from Maya traditions, there were some similarities in the sort of cosmological views of these two cultures. The focus of both kind of remained on earth as this animate life force. So there was no conception of, say, the heavens or the cosmos and the dead ascending to the heavens. Instead, what they would do is actually live in the earth and the mountains. And so the living can contact the dead by going deep into these caves, leaving offerings, conducting rituals, praying. So in this way, the church is like a sanctuary. It's like a a church. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of cool. And again, speaks to some similarities, but definitely some more distinctions than than the other definitely and then the language aspect too was really interesting that you actually found i take no credit for this um little bit of information at all i can't either this is all douglas preston (laughs) was this from his book as well i didn't remember because i just read through that but i didn't remember there but anyway it is important to to reference though because there is a linguistic connection to the dialect of uh how do you pronounce this chibchan chibchan that they believed was spoken in, by these peoples in Mosquita, these locations, T1 exactly. through 4. All the way down into Colombia, actually. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's connections with this dialect to the peoples who were allegedly responsible for the lost city of El Dorado or the city of gold. Mm-hmm. So here we come back to, again, this connection between potentially corn and the significance of corn and then gold. I'm drawing a line there because... Mm-hmm. We have no indication that these peoples in Mosquita were as, you know, laden in gold as the Aztecs and other, you know, like the Montezumas of the world that Mm -hmm. we would see later on, right? But at the same time, they have these linguistic connections to cultures that were very, very much focused on gold, had gold mines as one of their main sources of trade. The Miusca peoples, for example, that was the peoples are referencing in correlation to the Eldorado legend. So the question for me then, too, as we move forward here, I'm obviously super fascinated in all of the discoveries, but could there be some sort of a treasure trove hidden beneath some of these, uh, these buildings? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly it. Like you do get a layering. So the temple structures, you would actually, as they're starting to excavate these, what you're seeing is temples being built on top of temples being built on top of temples. And what you get is burial chambers in the original temple that's then built on top of. So you can have eight different temples and eight different tombs essentially in these so temples. we have a long way to go there's a long way to go definitely yeah. you know what was really cool though about these Muska peoples like i just thought this was really neat so <laughs> a lot of the legends of the el dorado was based off this one story that was actually a really real practice and what they would do these Muska peoples when they had a newly coronated king 
they would actually smear him in mud from head to toe. And then he would be um, dusted with gold. <laughs> and then he would dive into a, the nearby lake, Guatavita, to wash the gold off his body in an offering to the gods. Wow. Yeah. Pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, that is neat. Yeah. So, again, these people aren't associated with the Maya. They're further south. So, people, there's there's connections with both. And so, I think it's very interesting. The people of Mosquito are just resting in the middle. And they're just like, they're an enigma. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot that we haven't been able to answer about Totally. Them. Because the Maya realm was believed to have ended at Copan, right? Yeah, that was the furthest south. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then it's kind of interesting because it goes back and forth, right? You can argue that it was these formidable natural barriers of like the mountains and everything else. Or was it human resistance from mosquito warriors that actually stemmed the flow of Maya civilization uh, further south? Well, that's, <coughs> excuse me, that's, that's the next thing I think that's um, to be those are the next set of objects that I would really love to be discovered, like weaponry, potentially. Like, what were the... Because mm. those are typically things we find, right? Any we find sort of the arrowheads, we find the axes, we find things like that. What about hieroglyphics, right? Like, getting some sort of narrative, some Who sort won, of story. who lost, that type of thing. Because you do get that with Maya city-states, and there's all these inscriptions that are very similar to, like, say, like, Ramses and, like, all the um, totally. Egyptian pharaohs, how they would document their rule. Right. And so all these Maya city-states, there's all these inscriptions that basically say, like, this is a quote from Preston again. He says, these Maya city-states were belligerent and engaged in frequent battles with each other and with their neighbors. These conflicts only intensified as wealth and populations of Maya city-states increased, swelling their hunger for resources. Hmm. So that, again, yeah, it's just it's overextension. And that's where we're kind of getting into <laughs> these explanations here. So. so we know very little about these people. Next question is what wiped them out? Right. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, we have the example of Copan to kind of give us a starting off point for comparison's sake. So this Mayan example basically comes to it's a product of overextension and this is on three different prongs we've got political we've got economic and we've got social so political would have just been like the sort of parasitic nature of the elites kind of taking over (laughs) preston references the saudi royal family as a comparable example today because they've got over fifteen thousand princes and princesses apparently yep so you get that overextension of the elite draining of resources all that kind of stuff then you get the economic side of it, right? So that's kind of self-explanatory. And then the social. So obviously the commoners would have started to suffer from this. Yeah. So in Copan, we get this exact thing going on. So as the ruling class grew and grew, uh, the general population fell into poverty, ill health. And this is evidenced by malnourished skeletons and diseased skeletons are actually found in the area. So as Copan settled, it was built up in about the 5th century A.D., so by the middle of the sixth, um, overextension was already evident. Yeah. <laughs> and Jared Diamond, I really like this guy. He argues in his book Collapse that it was um, ecological destruction as a root cause of collapse. And he says, quote, um, environmental degradation combined with royal neglect and incompetence would have been um, the main contributing factors. And so there was actually a building spree that's documented here. And this occurred in fi- 16, or sorry, 650 A.D., and some people argue that this over-farming and these extensive building projects just drained drained the population, drained resources, resulted in deforestation, soil erosion, and exhaustion, that resulting in 
reduce harvest yields, um, reduce nutritional value, and then just, yeah. Collapse. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, others kind of argue, though, that these extensive projects and, like, pumping money or, well, what would have been... In our, in our modern terms, or like pumping money into projects was to revitalize an economy, right? But mm. is this just sort of a, you know, is that just a modern way of looking at it? Like, would that have actually been a Short-term thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as like, you know, yeah, let's build, let's build a few new roads so we can employ, like have contracts for them and employ some people. Like, I don't think it would play out exactly the same way. It might have been okay at first. But then as it progressed, right, they would have still felt the hunger, disease, and all this stuff. So it almost would have created this cosmological imbalance, and commoners would have felt this the most, and they would have felt that their rulers were abusing their roles and their power. And so right. you essentially what you get at Copan is just a uh, disintegration. Yeah. You get people just walking away from it. And by 1080, gone. So is um, that what happened in Mosquita. Well, that's just it. Okay, so yeah, Copan floundered. It was slow. The um the what happened in the Mosquita region was sudden. So it was all at once. It wasn't like a tiered destruction unlike the Maya city-states and 1500s when you see this. So it's a sudden civilization-wide collapse. Yes. So there's no doubt that like, there could have been a whole schwack of reasons, but what do we get when we get 1500? We get the arrival of Europeans and the arrival of disease. And so there's no doubt that the white, this white city, like T1, would not have been spared. No one would have been spared. Okay. At first it was the islands, so you get the first wave of disease that came with, uh, what's with his name, Spanish. Columbus. Yeah. <laughs> Columbus was the first one that kind of brought about all this stuff, and he infected all the islands. And then from the islands, when they moved on to shore, then it just, it was like a dragnet of death, yeah. is how this guy, um, Bartolome de las Casas, we, I studied him. Well, we both studied him yeah, in school. Yeah, yeah, and he was, he was a native sympathizer. He wanted, he wanted peace. He wanted, um, he wanted integration and he wanted respect for these indigenous people already there. Mm-hmm. But what you get with this quote unquote dragnet of death is just a collapse. So Everyone was devastated. Like, <laughs> conquistadors weren't spared, but they were definitely, they didn't witness the extremes. And yep. it would have been essentially an apocalypse. Pretty much. There's stories of conquistadors walking into villages and areas that they've never been before. Just bodies everywhere. Just postulating corpses that are just decomposing. You might find, like, one remainder, one one child, sole survivor or something, but not even. Like, it was, it was 95% collapse of population and even like like sure like yeah like they brought it but they didn't mean to so it was kind of this yeah it's just very unfortunate it's just the yeah it was Mm -hmm. just a product of the contact but yeah and even columbus like he even said he's like he was devastated by this because he wanted he wanted to document he wanted to have some sort of you know relationship whatever even if it was a subjugative one totally this brings me back to the the idea of the cash being um objects put in there quickly though like over not over a period of time but all at once um, in a single offering obviously at the tail end of this city's life um would be the implication of that right Mm -hmm. and so but my thinking on that is like disease spreads really quickly obviously um it's gonna it's gonna rip through a city you know quickly but i i don't know exactly how many days or how many weeks to the point where they would have been okay we need to make this mass offering now 
because things aren't going good, mm-hmm. right? Or would there be an indication that that would have taken place over a slightly longer period of time, maybe a year, say, mm-hmm. which would be totally indiscernible now looking at something that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. Mm-hmm. So we're speculating again, but it's the, the difference between <clears throat> there being potentially like hearing stories about disease and it not actually getting to them yet and starting to add these ritual sacrifice, like to, exactly. to try to defend themselves from it, right? Oh, and yeah. then all of a sudden in the snap of a finger from one point of contact or something, there's this dramatic collapse. Uh, okay, so let's go back into the timeline then, because I think that's important here. I kind of mapped this out because there was a, ni- a 1519 smallpox ec- epidemic that hit the mainland and lasted about a decade. So from 1519 to 1530, it wiped out approximately 90% of the population. Yes. By 1550, 95% of the population had been wiped out. But my question was, okay, this epidemic, could this have reached as far into remote interior as Mosquita? Because we get these stories, right? So in 1526, you get Hernan Cortes's letter penned to Charles of Spain. 20 years after that, so roughly 1546, you get Pedraza, the missionary dude, who happened to stumble upon the stunning vista of a white city, and his guide tells him it's inhabited by a prosperous people with gold plates and goblets, which seems very contemporary, right? Not as if he's telling him a story of the past. No. So I was kind of arguing at first, I was like, is this evidence to refute the idea that disease could have wiped out the populations of T1 and T3? But another line of thought is that because these were so deep in the rainforest and so isolated, it would have just, they wouldn't have been spared, but it would have just taken an extra decade to actually reach them. So there could have been people living in the city in 1546 as Pedraza related, right. but by 1550, exactly that, a span of four years, that's yeah. when they're making these offerings, perhaps, who knows? So you can't argue either way. Right. It just would have taken longer. There's no way they would have been spared. There was devastation happening to the north of them to the south of them to the east to the west there's no way they would have been spared it's just a matter of how long it would have taken to get there so that's kind of what i was thinking is that this would have been exactly that um this cache that they've found and the destruction of the objects to release the spirits of the objects Mm -hmm. this was like a final it's like essentially a a grave for the city it's kind of how i'm looking at it yeah, I want in the city to continue on in some other way by making those and offerings. And appeasing the gods of it, right? It's yeah. like the vulture at the very center, the symbol of death and transition yeah. and rebirth and all this kind of stuff. Right. Like, I don't know. Very, very cool stuff. So, I mean, I guess we kind of are, I mean, that it, it really is disease. I mean, we kind of know. Mm-hmm. We know. They were it's never just a question of, enough. I'm fascinated by how they would have gone about trying to prevent it, how they would have gone about trying to... Um, you know, I don't know, just mitigate it. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. but yeah, anyway, we're kind of coming down to the end here. Yeah. So we are kind of getting to the end here. It's ongoing. Obviously we haven't even begun. Like we keep saying there's, it's just, it's starting. It's a new generation of archeology span that's going to be taking place. And we had references from the LIDAR technicians being like, okay, this data is going to take us probably a hundred years to interpret properly. And then uh, probably another hundred years on top of that to do the ground truth thing. Right. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I, just to close up that whole thing on the metates and the the cash at T1 though, uh, Douglas Preston made a comment in his 2017 New Yorker piece. This is a quote. And he says, taken together, these clues presented by the cash suggested that this was not a grave for an individual. It was the cenotaph for an entire city. 
So let's just go back to the imagery of like an apocalyptic movie where people are basically like, think of a zombie apocalypse. That's essentially what it would have been playing out for these people. Yeah. They would have had no idea why. On top of it, they would have seen that the the invaders were largely spared while they were experiencing the devastation, which if you go back to their whole religious and cosmological views, like they're being punished. So, but that's just it though. That would have been even more bizarre for these people because they didn't have contact with conquistadors. Mm-hmm. They didn't have people so they knocking on even... their doorstep. They were just like all of a sudden, what the hell is going exactly. on here? So then it would have been that extra factor of the invaders wouldn't have been involved. It would have just been like, the gods hate us for whatever reason now. What are we doing wrong? We're all going to die. And then they're dead. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. And the whole history, everything is just, it's just amazing to me to think that uh, nature can just erase so much and, and cover up or so much. Or hide at least. Maybe cover not necessarily up, yeah. erase. There's still to be found. Mm-hmm. The question, I guess, if the Spanish didn't make it there and scare them away, in that sense, did they take things with them, the people that did flee? I mean, in- inevitably, people survive, right? It's 95%, mm-hmm. even if it's 99.999%. I mean, there's exactly. thousands of that survive. Exactly. Where do they go? Exactly. Where have they, exactly, like, they might have lost their own history, right? Even if you are, like, a survivor. Right. And, like, we even said with, like, Copan, the example where people just walked away from it, some people probably would have ended up in the Mosquito area. Yeah. And just incorporate it into an existing culture. Possibly. Or, yeah. I mean, I just, I can't wait to see what more we, we find with this. Exactly. We're going to keep on the story for you guys. And as updates come up, we're going to um, just share them with you on our social media. And then as well, if we can end up getting an interview with this Steve Elkins guy, we're going to have that. So Yeah, more, fingers crossed for us. So Hopefully like, more to come. <laughs> definitely. So stay tuned on that. Mm-hmm. And I guess... I guess we're down to the end here. I mean, it's not even really one of those ones where you can have like a final theory or a final thought or anything like that. It's no. just, it's just this ongoing, who, who the heck were they? Um, and yeah. some people speculate they were one of the lost tribes of Israel and we didn't bother bringing up things like that because no. that's, that's way out there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> even for us, <laughs> even for us, but it is, it is definitely a question though. Um, who, how, how were they connected potentially to El Dorado and things like that? <laughs> I want to know what sort of treasures these people potentially have hidden. And what's underneath this, the red earth, the floor of the cache yeah, exactly. where these objects were laying. Exactly. So get at us. So yeah, get, get at us. Let us know what you think. Um, hit us portal up. mailbox at gmail.com. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, hit, hit us up on our socials at into the portal podcast on Instagram at into the portal, the number one on Twitter. And as always, thank you so much to our producer, Charlene Rambler and all of our Patreon supporters for making this episode happen. Mm-hmm. You guys are the best. And to everybody else for listening. Um, we'll leave you mm-hmm. off with, uh, Ooh, with the coffee gator with reminder. the coffee gator yeah the coffee gator <laughs> reminder i had a little <laughs> it took me a second there um get your answers in people yeah we had that question there at uh, the half half time the yep. half time of the episode <laughs> get those answers in because uh yeah we'll be doing that draw soon and let us give you free stuff let us give you free stuff <laughs> but yeah let us know what you think of this episode guys and uh thank you so much for listening to part two of the lost city of the monkey god or la ciudad blanca mm-hmm. and uh we'll be back with more very very soon yep
This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.